Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. And then I'm going to take questions for a few minutes. So think of some questions to ask me, because that's really the fun part. Um, and then I'll stick around and chat and sign books if you want, or whatever. So that's the general program. Um, I'm going to read two pieces. I'm going to read the opening of the novel, and then I'm going to read a scene from a little later on. And I'll tell you what you need to know about that um, when we get there. Um, so uh, I guess it's useful to know about Elena that it's based um, it, as a it takes it takes as a jumping off point Daphne du Maurier's 1938 sort of gothic thriller Rebecca, um, but where that is really a sort of r romantic book, this is more of like a workplace drama. So it takes place largely in a small contemporary art museum. Um, uh, so for those of you who know Rebecca, it's kind of fun to think about the resonances, and if you don't know it, it doesn't matter. The story can stand on its own as well. So, um, so here we go, chapter one. Last night, I dreamed of Nakwasset again. It was dusk. Somewhere beyond the scrubby hills full of brambles and beech plums and pine trees bent and twisted by the sea wind like old men, the sun was going down over the bay. From where I stood on the sandy shoulder of the two-lane highway, I couldn't see it, but I could feel the damp chill take hold of the afternoon. The light faded from clear gold to misty gray, the way everything fades there, the shingled houses and the wooden docks and the leathery skin of the Cape Cod women who live their lives in an abrasive broth of salt and sun, whose brows furrow early from so much squinting against the light. There I stood on the edge of the road, blue-black asphalt holding the heat. I could smell the tar melting, smell the pines and the brine of the sea, the restless, pungent, ever-present sea, primordial source of life and cause of so much death, flood and riptides, shipwrecks and suicides. Suddenly, the gates began to swing from the two great weathered posts, the lovely gates by Simeon Wexler that Bernard commissioned right at the beginning. Each plank of silvery wood was carved with reliefs of animals strata by strata, starfish and conchs along the bottom, deer and foxes and porcupines at chest level, and along the top, six feet up, the birds of the local woods and seashore, most of which I didn't recognize. I was never much of a naturalist, having early on turned my eye to art. Though this has changed in recent years along with so much else, 
so that today I can follow a path up a Napa hillside and turn to note a swallowtail or a red-bellied woodpecker. And even Bernard can be persuaded to admire a hummingbird balanced in midair above the swaying bee balm in his own small garden. Those gates were the first thing I loved about Nakwasset the first night Bernard brought me there. And in the dream, I was thrilled to see them again. But as I put out my hand to push open the gate, I saw that the shadows had tricked me. The gate sagged from the weary posts held together with iron chains. I cried out in sorrow, even as, it being a dream, I passed like water through the barrier and found myself on the other side, walking, as I had so many times, up the rutted lane. The first quarter mile or so was paved, though the color of the old asphalt had faded to a pale gray. Even when the knock was at its peak, the lane, rising and falling among the dunes, was kept primitive and rough, like most of the roads leading out to the bay. When it rained, huge muddy puddles gaped, and repeat visitors learned to leave their cars in the dirt lot by the road and walk. The way rose and fell. After the second rise, you could hear the sea. It poured itself onto the breast of the shore and then drew back, gave itself and drew back. It would not stay and it would not keep away so that the unhappy shore could never possess, could never forget. Or maybe it was the shore's pale indifference that drove the sea wild so that every so often she whipped herself into a hurricane or a nor'easter, wreaking her vengeance indiscriminately. Just so an artist, ignored too long by a callous world, may break into brilliance or flame up into cynical stuntsmanship or drop herself like a stone down the dark well of despair. Once contained by gardeners, the scrub was growing wild. The restless wind rattled the dry leaves and the crickets sang their elegy to summer. On I walked, my feet slipping in the sand, the grass that grew along the central hump in the lane tickling my bare legs, the sound and smell of the sea leading me on. And then I rounded a bend and ascended the final rise. And there was the knock before me, the long shingled building with its great windows facing the sea. For half a moment, time seemed to coil inward like a spring, present and past, dream and reality coming together so that I felt I was seeing the place for the first time again, its serene yet lively beauty, its strange angular shapes made almost natural by the vernacular shingle. Then the moon sailed out from behind the tattered clouds, and I saw that the place was abandoned. The roof was stove in, the glass shattered, even the walls blown away in places, revealing the studs and beams. The building looked like a wrecked ship sitting high up on that long dune, a rich merchant vessel, perhaps, whose cargo of spices or gold had been doomed from the start. Of course, Nauquasset has been lost to me for a long time now, if it was ever mine. These days, Bernard and I run a little gallery in Russian Hill, a state work mostly, with a focus on the Bay Area Figurative School. 
Not for us any longer the drama of the living artist with her hopes and dreams, her anxieties and insecurities and unpredictable demands. We deal exclusively in the work of the dead. I live in a small apartment with a view of this very different bay, and Bernard has a bungalow in Sausalito. Even after all that happened, he likes to take the ferry to work. He has recovered his fondness for boats. In the morning, I stop at the French bakery halfway up the hill and pick up cafe au lait and rolls, and we have breakfast together in the office before the gallery opens. Bernard has grown stouter and, of course, grayer. His head is completely silver now, and he has grown a mustache. His resemblance to a walrus is striking. But he seems happy enough, as am I, happy enough. If Bernard has lovers, he keeps it to himself. As for me, I have a man I see from time to time. He travels a great deal for his job. But when he's in town, he calls and I make him dinner, which we eat on the little Pacific-facing balcony, and then we go to bed. As love affairs go, it's not remarkable, but it suits me. I'm always happy when his name pops up on my caller ID, but I'm equally glad to wave goodbye in the morning and head up the hill where Bernard will be cursing at his email. I'll look over the papers and read out to him any item of interest from the Chronicle or the Times. We particularly enjoy reading about the bad behavior of our colleagues, suspected of trafficking in suspiciously acquired art, or carrying on too public an affair with the wife of a famous painter. An article about tax fraud can cheer us for a whole morning. For ours is a world of sharks and scorpions, and we are a pair of dull, ethical fools who, everyone says so, could make a lot more money than we do. Which is no doubt true, but what would we do with more money? Bernard, after all, spent most of his life practically drowning in wealth, and I have everything I want. Truly, I do. I have escaped that naive, idealistic, anxious young woman, my former self, devo neurotically devoted to art like a novice nun to God. Debasement and ambition are two sides of the same heavy coin, but I have changed currencies. I have shed my chrysalis and become not a butterfly, but a happy moth, fluttering my brown wings peacefully through the dusk. And here is Bernard beside me, though too heavy to be a fellow moth, perhaps. Make him a possum then, ambling along under the yellow moon while I flit just above his ear. It's a peaceful, pleasant, predictable life, as long as we avoid the hypnotic dazzle of the freeway lights. And of course, we both follow the auction prices. We keep a special eye out for those names who used to show at Naquasset, some of which belong to superstars now. And then at 10, Scarlett jangles open the door, music leaking from her earbuds, wearing something outrageous we can she can tut over admiringly, a low-cut sheath of fuchsia lame, a high-necked vintage dress of patched and faded lace. I used to think she frequented secret midnight boutiques and underground seamstresses, but now I know she buys it all on the internet. Every month or two as well, she radically rethinks her hair, still young enough to believe a person can actually change. 
or maybe she's just enjoying herself. Scarlet makes us laugh. In return, we pet her and fuss over her and give her advice to which she pretends not to listen. She's wonderful with the customers. What does she think of us, two eccentrics growing slowly older in a business better suited to the young? Does she suspect we might once have done things, wanted things, things for which we were willing to risk everything? How does she describe us to her friends, those hipster graffiti artists, vegans, performance poets with whom she texts all day? Probably she doesn't talk about us at all. So that's the first chapter. And then, um, so what you need to know, um, our narrator, who doesn't have a name, but she's a first-person narrator, so that's okay. She's a, a young curator, basically just out of graduate school, and she's been hired by this man, Bernard Augustine, who she met at the Venice Biennale, to be the head of his small contemporary art museum on Cape Cod, the Nakwasset Contemporary Museum, which they call the Nock. Um, so Bernard's old curator, Elena, disappeared under mysterious circumstances two years earlier, and the museum has been closed since then. And there's this question now of what will be the new show that will open the museum. Um, and there's this artist named Morgan McManus who was very close to Elena, and Elena kind of promised him a show, and he still wants it. And today our narrator is having a studio visit with Morgan McManus. Um, she doesn't think she's going to like his work, though, which is largely about his experience fighting in the Gulf War, where he lost an arm and a leg. And he has a series of different prostheses, which he makes as part of his artistic practice. Sporting an artificial arm and leg, Morgan McManus picked me up at 10 in his black Jeep. He wore faded, cut-off jeans and a ribbed wife-beater in desert camouflage, a beaded moccasin on his real foot. I had wondered how he managed driving, but it didn't look so hard. He had his good leg for the pedals and his good arm for the steering wheel. His prosthesis, the arm one, worked fine for manipulating the turn signal and presumably the wiper blades when he needed them and for punching the buttons on the radio. I had never seen anything like McManus's prostheses. There had been a girl in my chemistry class in college with a stiff plastic arm several shades tanner than the rest of her. And I'd seen a piece on the TV news about a famous skier with a shiny steel-footed rod that attached below the knee. But McManus's were different. The arm was a bright jade green, a straight tube from where it attached at the shoulder to a kind of flat paddle, like the end of an oar, where the hand would have been. An assortment of appendages stuck out from the paddle like attachments on a pocket knife, one shaped more or less like an index finger, one with a flat ring on the tip like a bottle opener, one with a sharp skewer. The arm itself was carved, or more likely fabricated to look as though it were carved in the manner of a totem pole with strange squat figures in raspberry pink and turquoise blue stacked on top of each other. These figures had big staring eyes and peculiar limbs which, when looking closer, I saw were depictions of the very limbs McManus was wearing self-referential self-portraits then in a primitivist style of a new race of prosthetic men. 
Each figure had a fat red quill slashed across its middle that I took at first to be a knife. But then it came to me that it wasn't a knife at all, but an erect phallus, a priapic animus, a defiant symbol of potency engraved into the inanimate limb. The leg, harder to see from where I sat, was made out of something dark and shiny. I like your arm, I said. <laughs> so the studio visit begins before we even get to the studio, he said. He looked at me sideways, his mirrored sunglasses reflecting me back to myself, a pale, insubstantial figure with a wild nest of hair. Do you have different limbs, I asked, for different moods? I do, he said. I often wish I could wear six or eight at once like those Indian gods. Do you notice how they're always smiling? Are they? Absolutely, he said, and do you know why? Because they can feel up half a dozen milkmaids at once. Or, you know, stable boys. Beach traffic was picking up. A surfboard protruded from the open window of the dusty car in front of us like an enormous tongue. Bicycles passed us on the sandy, treacherous shoulder. The fresh, salty air was mingled with a stink of diesel. So, I said, how far is it to your studio? I guess you're dying to see my work, he said. The truth was, I was scared. I knew his work was about war, brutal, explicit work about his own experience intended to shock. He jerked the wheel, swerving into a driveway where a mailbox shaped like the head of some kind of beast was nailed to a weathered fence post, roaring to a stop near a dusty clump of Rose of Sharon bushes, white flowers with blood-red throats. Using the little hook on one of the paddle appendages, he removed the key, tossed it in the air, and caught it with his hand. Here we are. McManus's studio was a long, ugly, flat-roofed building made of cinder block and aluminum siding. The concrete floor was spotless. There was a big table saw and a lathe and a lot of other equipment. A heavy curtain of clear plastic divided the room in two, and on the far end I could see computers and tape recorders, monitors and projectors. If Leonardo had lived today, he would have been an installation artist. He would have written his own computer code. McManus had walked from the Jeep to the studio. He could walk quite well on his false leg, but once inside, he dropped into a low wheelchair in which he zipped around the room with the speed and agility of a big cat. We'll start with my most recent work, he said. All right with you? Whatever you like. He looked up at me from the chair, his totem arm resting in his lap at such an angle that all the wide-eyed faces seemed to gape up at me. It's called Battlefield Three with screams, he said. Ready? I'm ready. I followed him as he rolled across the floor, pulling the dividing curtain open like an impresario. A section of the space was marked off with black electrical tape forming a sort of stage. At the back of the stage, on the wall, was a photograph, eight feet high and perhaps twice as wide. My first thought, as my mind scrambled on its own initiative to postpone recognition, the image remaining for half a moment an abstract arrangement of shape and color, was to wonder how he had mounted it. And then the picture careened into focus, the images slamming into my mind. 
The photograph showed a battlefield, a wide, dusty beige expanse of ground under a dusty blue-white sky. Bat bodies, mangled or burned, lay in impossible positions, ripped open, missing vital parts, visible in stunning detail. A shattered and bloody arm hung in a bush. A foot with part of a leg was propped on some rubble. There was blood, raw streams and dark lurid puddles of it, crimson and rusty, a study in red. And what I took to be guts, though I'd never knowingly seen human guts. Some of it, thankfully, was concealed by oily smoke that billowed and ballooned across the brown dirt and the flat sky like charcoal scribbles in a side Twombly. And then there were the faces, the parts of the faces. The objects on the studio floor were easier to look at only because you knew they were false, made by hand or machine from plastic or foam, paint and glue, and God knew what else. At least, despite the real forays into flesh by Joseph Boys, Damien Hurst, and others, I presumed they were fake. Even so, they were revolting, pink and oozing, blackened and bilious green with specks of white a bloated torso extruding strings of viscera, a leg split open, the bone sticking through. My eyes skated across the surface, unwilling to settle. Look, I told myself, look. That was my job. Wait a sec, McManus said. He spun himself to the sound wall and hunched over it, pressing buttons, turning dials. From all corners of the room, like a sudden wind from hell, the sounds of human wailing and groaning swept through the space, increasing in volume, pain, number, and intensity, like a vise tightening or a migraine blooming. Wanting to run, I stayed where I was, the sound clinging to me like an odor, abrading my skin, invading my synapses so that I couldn't think. McManus was watching me, his handsome mask, his totem arm, his shiny leg, and his leg of flesh. Here was a man who had lifted himself from the ashes and literally remade himself. I stood still, pretending attention. Was this art? Was it obscenity, propaganda? Was it a hostile, manipulative scam? There you go, he called, the full sensory experience, every channel engaged, every receptor on the body enthralled, the pores on your skin blazing with sensation. He wheeled himself over to where I stood, drenched with sweat as if I were melting. The cool metal of the chair grazed my thigh. I could smell him him and his work, indistinguishable, perspiration and burning plastic, hard steel and salt, the pungent oceanic stink of whale's breath. I doubt you saw anything like this at the Midwestern Museum of Art, he said. Is your work all about war, I asked. War is just an occasion, he replied, not a subject. My work is about the human body, the embodied body, fragility and objection, you know, the gossamer line between beauty and decay. I didn't know. I had lost all power of judgment, but I didn't care. It didn't matter. Even if it turned out to be the greatest art of its day, I knew I would never, ever exhibit this. Thank you.
Yeah. How does this reflect your job in Philadelphia? <laughs> Did you see such things in your contemporary art? Um, so the question is about the job that I have at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Philadelphia. That yeah, that he yeah. mentioned. Um, so um, did I see things like this? Yeah, I, I did. I mean, there is all kinds of stuff out there that's, you know, beautiful or gruesome or minimal or broke or really strange or kind of a lot less, I mean, there's anything that you could imagine being done is being done. But I did see in particular some of these really enormous, um, hyper-real, really, um, really, uh, photographs really meant to shock in tremendous detail. So that is something that, I, that I've seen a couple of different artists who did. So um, that, that, that in particular I, I, I know about. Um, but um, I, I didn't know when I started working at the museum that I would be writing this book, and um, and but certainly everything that I learned there and that I was really interested in learning about the ways that the visual art world was like my sort of literary world I knew and was unlike it, um, and and similar questions about the relationship between work and art, um, life and art, um, the those questions sort of seeing them in a new way um, were a lot of what was behind writing the book and and trying to address some of those questions in the book. Yeah. So, Rachel, I am so curious about. Um, I love the book. Thank you. Um, but I'm so curious about your writing um, in the first person and not, I and mean, I, you know, in sort of homage to to Rebecca, not giving the character a name, and how that felt to you, and if there were places where you felt yourself resisting that or wanting to name her, or did you know her name and you just didn't go there or how it, what was that like? So Daphne du Maurier writes about not naming the 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 main character in Rebecca as a sort of a as a as a sort of exercise to see if she could do it. I don't know if that's the real reason or if that's what she says. And it certainly in that book at least has the effect of making that character sort of sort of adds to the sense of her invisibility or her sense of her own invisibility. Um, I really didn't think I could do that when I wrote this book and I just right away gave the character a name. So she had a name all the way through the writing of the book. Um, and then at a certain point when I showed a draft to somebody, they said, you know, you could just go through and take out that name and it would be fine. Um, and I went back and I looked and I saw that in fact I could take out the name. So um, I had to do a couple of things. I have Bernard sometimes calls her Cara, so Italian for darling, so that takes care of when he needs to call her by her name and the people who work under her um, sort of snidely call her boss sometimes, so that takes care of them needing to use her name and a couple of sentences were hard to reorganize but mostly it was just totally fine so yes she does have a name and I and I do know what it is and um, yeah and I'm not telling yeah 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 I'm curious why you chose uh, Cape Cod as your, as your background and maybe it has to do with the art world the presence of galleries there it's also kind of a mysterious place but I can't remember where the original setting was. Was it New England? No, so it was Cornwall. It was England. Yeah, it was England for sure. And it's not named as Cornwall, but Daphne du Maurier had a house there and spent a lot of time there. So presumably that's the, that was her, that was her coast, 
that she was using. And in and in Rebecca, the sea is such a such a constant presence and this and where you can hear it from and where you can't hear it from and what might have happened in it and what might not have happened in it. Um, so I definitely wanted to use that. Um, growing up, we went to Cape Cod every summer. So I grew up in the Washington DC area, but I spent my summers on Cape Cod and um, that landscape is really deeply in me. I actually, um, I really hate to swim. I'm kind of afraid of the water, but I do, I, I still dream about that landscape, the harbor that was outside the house that we rented. Um, and this isn't on the harbor. This, the museum is on a, is on a beach right on the bay. Um, but those landscapes are like the landscapes that I've internalized the most deeply. And it was so great to revisit, to revisit them imaginatively and get to get to live in them and remember the detail of them when I was working on the book. So that was a really, that was a delight. So writing about artwork, yeah. can be, I think, can be really difficult because you really have to be detailed in describing painting or, or, or um, you know, or, or, or like the prosthetics and things. And um, how do you go about doing it? Do you start to get a point in the painting? Or, so almost none of the artwork that I talk about in this book is painting. Um, there's um, installations and there's some sculpture and there's some weird, yeah, like collage -y things. Um, and I don't think I start at any particular place. I think I have a sort of general overall sense of it that I try to convey sort of what the scale is or what the feeling is or what the um, sort of major elements are. And I had a lot of fun doing that. I mean, I really love describing things. And one of the things I liked in this book, I like getting to describe the artwork and then getting to describe the natural world, right? So the seashore is really important and the artwork is really important and this, and and sort of this question about the relationship between life and art and where does one end and fall into the other is a central underlying question of the book and it was fun to sort of think that that um, that I was sort of working those themes just in the pleasure of writing in a sort of similar way about those two different realms of the world. I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> So it, it is true that there were some things I thought I made up, and then when I was doing more research, I was like, oh, Marina Abramovich did that in 1968, right? It's not even like cutting edge, you know? It's like half a century old. So, um, so I mean, there's certainly the sense that, you know, what what is new? You know, what could anyone invent that hasn't been invented before? Um, and it's also certainly true that when you write a novel, I mean, people are always saying to me, oh, that character so-and-so is based on me, right? And it's like, oh, no. So um, it's certainly possible somebody might say, oh, yeah, that's my work of art, but I didn't, I didn't really copy anybody's works of art, so hopefully, hopefully that's OK. <laughs> only, only Daphne du Maurier's, right? And so, yeah. Okay. <laughs> How did you get that idea? So, um, I started working at this little art museum in Philadelphia uh, about six years ago now, five years ago now, and it was my first full-time office job. So until then, I had worked part-time and taught and done my writing and raised my kids and sort of pieced together a life, as so many writers do. Um, but at this moment, I was um, working full-time in an office in a cubicle, um, 43 years old, and there were so many things I could not do. Um, I couldn't 
figure out how to use the copy machine. I, I couldn't figure out how to like change the margins in Microsoft Word. Like it was just terrible. And the woman who had had this job before me, her name was Elisa. And when I would ask people how to do things or I was having a problem, people would say, oh, well, when Elisa was here, she would do things this way. Or you know, when, when Elisa was here, she always did it like that. And one day I was like, my god, this is just like Rebecca, but in the workplace. <laughs> and then I thought, oh, that's a good idea for a novel. Um, so that was how, so it was just sort of a burst of, oh, there's an idea, not, not an idea I went looking for. Anything else? Okay, thanks. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.